0: Alright everyone, welcome to the Department 12 Podcast, and uh, tonight I am talking to Katie and Mike Slider. Am I pronouncing your name right? You, you are. Yep. Alright. I love it when that <laughs> happens on the first try. No one ever gets mine right.
1: Uh, nobody gets ours. It's We always get Slitter. <laughs>
0: So Katie and Mike are both IO psychologists and they're married to each other and before we started recording I said boy it would be great if like one of you was I and the other one was oh and then we could have like a you know a bad sitcom I could put a laugh track in but it sounds like that's not the case you were saying like you have a pretty similar skill set?
1: We do, yeah. So um, we are, are both uh, former academicians turned practitioners. And now when we were in academia, we did have some differences in terms of, of what we researched. But um, since moving into the practitioner world, we are essentially doing the same thing. Um, so we, we are both senior consultants at first person. Um, and we do have separate portfolios of clients. And so there's some, some differentiation there. But um, in terms of what we actually do, it's, it's pretty comparable.
0: Okay. So um, let's go back because the topic for tonight is, you know, the differences between the real world and sort of the academic world. So let's go back to the academic world for a minute. You both went to the same college. Could you just tell us a little bit about where you went and, and all that stuff?
2: Yeah, we both went to the uh, Ph.D. program in IO Psychology at Bowling Green State University, uh, and we both graduated in 2012, so we've been out for a few years now. Okay, and is that where you met? It is. We, we occasionally get the flyer in the mail saying that you are Falcon Flames and you should be donating to the university.
1: <laughs> they know when they try, to, they, they try to take advantage of it.
2: <laughs> you get the double guilt trip for donating.
1: Like, I donate
0: with my student loans. Thank you very much. <laughs> exactly. So... Uh, You met and you were both working on your PhD and you came out of the PhD program and it sounds like for a while you were on the academic side. Um, What made you decide to make the switch over to uh, the real world, quote unquote?
1: Yeah. So for me, it was, it was actually kind of necessity. So um, we actually ended up in, we're in the Indianapolis area and we actually ended up here because my husband took uh, an academic position in the area. And so I came along as the the spouse and was lucky enough to um, get into a postdoc position in the area. So I did um, about a year and a half of postdoc work and uh, about six months before my postdoc was up, I started giving serious consideration to the fact that I needed an actual job, and um, there just happened to be a position that was open in this area, um, about 20 minutes away from where we live, that just perfectly suited my skill set. I had specialized in um, kind of applied measurement and psychometrics, and that's essentially what this position was. And so I applied, and uh, I got the position. So um, I, I took the, the practitioner position at that time really because I, it just was it was a good fit for the, the, the skill set that I had. It yeah. kept me in the area. Um, really kind of a practical decision. but then I've stayed in the practitioner arena because uh, for me, I really enjoy being able to actually apply what I've learned. Um, and it's not to say that academics don't apply it. It's just a different way of applying it. But I like, being able to solve real-world problems, uh, and I like helping my clients figure out how to, um, you know, make strategic decisions based on on the evidence that they have. So it's it's kind of a, um, kind of a a good problem-solving and applied option that I really enjoy.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Now, how about you, Mike? Did you consider a career in academia, or did you go right out into the field after graduation?
2: Uh, well, I was, uh, I was an assistant professor for three years at IUPUI, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, uh, in the master's I.O. program. So I, I had been thinking I was going to stick to an academic career, and then I started doing some contract work on the side for the company that I'm currently working for, first person. I, I was really enjoying the work. It was different. It was neat to actually apply some of the, uh, well, some of the topics that I learned about, some of the topics that I taught about uh, in, in classes. So actually applying those and they made me a a job offer and I said, you know, I'll give it a shot. I'll see what it's like, uh, see what the academic world is like. And two years later, I'm still here.
0: Okay. So take me back to that, that moment of decision, if you don't mind, Mike. So what, when you get this job offer, what are like the pros and cons? What's going through your head as you're making the decision, whether you're going to stay in academia or, or take this job?
2: Yeah, that's that's a a very good, (laughs) a very good point, a a question. And I I think that I would be remiss if I didn't say that the increased salary played (laughs) a bit role there. (laughs) I know, I know. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound terrible? Don't listen, oh. kids. Ios don't care about that sort of thing. Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, uh. No, he uh-uh. no, doesn't. So that that played a role. The fact that you know we were considering um, starting a family at the time, and the fact that it would be a fully remote position was was very appealing for me. Um, and like I said, it, it was so interesting and neat for me to start to practice all of the different things I've taught and. Uh, learned about and then taught that it, it just seemed like it would be a, an exciting uh, choice for me. Yeah. Uh, kind of out of the norm, you know, taking kind of a riskier path, but I decided uh, I'll go for it.
0: Yeah, so I want to Dig into that a little bit more But right now I want to ask When you say you work remote So that means different things to different people So what's like a day like for you working remote? Does that mean you're at home Or does that mean that you travel part of the time? And this is I guess a question for both of you
1: yeah, so I can jump in on this one. So um, our remote means that we are completely home-based. Um, we do some occasional travel. So it, it kind of depends on what projects we're doing with our clients at the time, um, whether or not they need us on site. So we do uh, we do some traveling, but for the most part, uh, remote for us means that we work from home. So we actually have a, a dedicated space in the house. We have a room that is our office.
2: Okay.
1: Um, we do actually share an office, which sometimes... Um, we don't. So, we don't
2: talk much. We
1: don't. No, we actually. So the funny thing is, we actually have uh, two walking workstations, so we can actually walk uh, slowly on treadmills while we work, and we have them strategically aimed in opposing directions, so we, <laughs> we don't look at each other, we don't talk to each other, and that's how we stay
0: uh, there. See, I wish. Uh, in my mind, I was imagining like a battleship setup, you know, where you had two laptops <laughs> and they're right against each other, and back here back, you know, the odd couple themes playing in the background. <laughs>
2: Not, nothing quite that exciting. <laughs>
0: All right. So, yeah, I worked from home for probably four years, and when that four years was up and I realized that I was going to have to wear something other than sweatpants, it was a, a real disappointment.
1: Uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. When we were getting ready for uh, for the SIAP National Conference this year, um, I'm sort of ashamed to admit that I, I walked into my closet and realized, oh i i need to go shopping i do not have anything that is presentable at this point <laughs> so yeah you definitely uh y- y- at least i did find my my wardrobe sort of uh, morphed into the less professional domain
0: so i think there's a lot of people that are probably listening who are, are jealous of the whole setup um <laughs> and what what is it the work that you do like what is it you do for first person
1: Yeah. um, So uh, our company is um, primarily focused on pre-hire assessment um, in the mainly in the contact center space, but also in um, just a really wide variety of industries and occupations. Um, In terms of what we do individually, uh, it's really a little bit of everything in terms of the kind of the talent management life cycle. Um, the majority of our work tends to be on kind of the front end pre-hire portion of that talent life cycle. So um, when we are working with a client, um, we will typically do job analysis work with them. Um, we will often do some uh, validation work with them, um, some concurrent validation, sometimes predictive validation. We do, you know, transport validation um, to put together an assessment process that will be most predictive for them We help them put it into place. Sometimes we help with developing of of interviews to go along with those pre-hire assessments. We help our clients work through the whole process of getting people through the pipeline. Uh, And then we really just kind of partner with our clients over the years to help them uh, refine and improve that system. Uh, And typically that involves uh, an annual or semi-annual business review, uh, where we are looking at the relationships between the assessments and uh, attrition and performance and just kind of constantly updating the process. So it's really kind of full talent management lifecycle processes.
0: Okay, and do you focus on a particular industry or is it a pretty diverse portfolio of, of clients you work
2: with? Yes, I I think that most of our focus has historically been on frontline service. So there's a lot of work with call centers and outsourcers. Uh, We do work with telecommunications uh, and insurance. Uh, So, I mean, it's a pretty broad uh, portfolio of clients that we have, uh, but there's there's probably a disproportionate focus on, I'd say, frontline service. Okay. Sales and service.
1: Yeah, so a lot of different industries, but the occupation tends to be more heavily focused on, on uh, the contact center.
0: Okay. So, um I guess this is more question for Mike then. If you what part of your day or what part of your job makes you say, "Oh man, I wish I was back in academia." <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm going to try to get you in trouble here. No, that's, uh, that's perfectly fine. And I think the couple of times that I've really struggled and wished I was back in academia uh, has to do with the deadlines, the really aggressive deadlines that we sometimes have to set or are set by clients, which means that I need to work Thursday night, Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. In academia, there was never a true emergency that would uh, elicit that kind of response. Oh, no, I have reviewer comments that are due in a few days, or I have an article revision that's due. Well, we all know that in academia, those are shifting deadlines. Yeah. In applied world, mm-mm, no, no, you got to hit those deadlines or you could be in some real trouble. You could lose the client. So that's probably uh, what I feel that way the most.
0: That makes sense. Um so, Katie, building on that, what are some of the differences you see between, you know, what IO was in the classroom when you were learning versus what it is now for you in your, your day-to-day life?
1: Hmm. Okay, so I, I, I will start by saying I, I think the, the thing that surprised me the most when I made the shift into practice was how different data work is in practice than it is in how we learn about it. So um, I... I I've- I've taken statistics classes, I've taught statistics classes, um, all with a very, you know, applied focus. Uh, And when I actually got out into the quote unquote, real world, I was expecting big, beautiful data sets, and I was going to do some IRT analyses, and I was going to do these really awesome models, and it was just going to be great. Mm And I quickly realized that um, often the sample sizes are smaller than what we would consider to be ideal. Um, Oftentimes, I was working with criterion variables that were, um, in some cases, really unreliable or, you know, just variables that if given the choice, maybe I wouldn't want to work with um, for a variety of different reasons, just a a lot of differences in terms of what real data look like versus the data sets that we kind of play around with in the classroom and mm-hmm. quickly learned that you have to you have to adapt and you have to figure out how you are going to tell a story with data when you can't fall back on all those perfect practices mm-hmm. that you out yeah. That was
0: the thing. yeah, I can sympathize with that. And you know, <laughs> your, your your you know, academic mind rebels against these incomplete data sets and it rebels yeah. against telling that story because you just want to be like oh you wanna hedge it. You wanna use all those words you yes. use in a paper, like, well maybe in the... yes. but, and but the client that's... doesn't really want to hear that. You know, the client yeah. wants to hear a clean simple actionable story so
1: and you know two years three years actually three years into the applied world you know three years full time in the applied world I'm I'm still that's still a learning curve for me is to be more declarative and more decisive and to not say you know in academia it's always well this may possibly be related to this but we don't want to see for certain and it's having to learn how to go into a meeting and say this is what we are seeing this is what it means this is what you need to do
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So Mike, if you could go back if I could wave a magic wand and send you back into the classroom, would you change anything that you teach, that you taught or that you know, would you would you tell your students anything different as a result of your experience?
2: You know, I think that the big thing I would do, I I would often have students do very research based, very conference based presentations about some topic and I would make it very formal. I'd make it very timed. I'd make sure I grade them on how well they did and describing the theories and the methods and so on. I would probably nix that and have more time spent on presenting in a professional setting. Mm. So setting up a PowerPoint that's, uh, this is one of my big limitations, setting up a PowerPoint in a presentation that's visually appealing, uh, minimizes texts, uh, and and tells a story throughout. Uh, I would probably add that to every class that I teach, uh, the professional presentation.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and it is just a completely different world and you also have to be prepared for okay, you're three slides in and all of a sudden the client is just peppering you with questions. Yep. You know, they're not going to wait for you to get to the end <laughs> and nobody's sitting no. there with a ti- with a uh, uh,
2: a timer either to say, "Okay,
0: well you got 2 minutes left, so you better get this done." <laughs> yeah, yep.
2: Well, one of the things, uh, when I first started at First Person, our executive VP uh, asked me to do a practice presentation with him before I presented results to a client. And I started bringing up things like chi-square and regression coefficient, <laughs> and he, he verbally slapped me for doing that. He had started asking questions, well, how does our chi-square compare to other companies' chi-squares? I'm like, Okay. That was my first mistake. Uh, So, uh, you know, it's a different language. It really is uh, from what we learned in in grad school. And it's something that you really have to adapt to.
0: You should have said, ours is more square. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on.
2: (laughs) (laughs) square. Okay.
0: Let's say you were... um Talking to someone who is sort of getting close to the end of their doctoral uh, dissertation journey and they're trying to make up their mind, trying to decide uh, whether they're going to pursue an academic career or an applied career, what would you tell them or what kinds of questions would you ask them to help them make up their mind about that?
1: Yeah, I, I think my my first piece of advice would be to try to get as much applied experience as you can while you're in school, regardless of whether you think you want to go into academia or into applied work. Because there there really is no downside to having that applied work. Um, it's going to help you develop soft skills and to to really figure out how to be flexible and adaptable with what you've learned, which is going to be beneficial whether you go into academia or applied work. Um, but if there is any downside in your mind, having that experience, I would say, is the best way to figure out which one better fits you. Um, so that, that would really be my, my big piece of advice would be to find ways to get that applied work, whether it's volunteering, um, whether it's you know working with someone at your university who does consulting on the side, or actually finding uh, a, a formal internship. I think that's probably the best thing that you can do for yourself is to get that experience.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Anything to add, Mike?
2: Yeah, so I'm trying to think about the differences between Katie and I, because she was more bound for a consulting uh, career early on than I was. And I think one of the biggest differences between she and I is that Katie thrives in a structured, deadline-based environment.
1: That's a good point.
2: So if she doesn't have a deadline, something's yeah. not going to get done. <laughs> Whereas I'm more of a, uh, I guess, I'll do it because I'll set these really strict internal deadlines that that uh, may be unrealistic, but I stick to them because I get stressed out. So I, I think that the extent to which deadlines are, are motivating to you, a, a external versus internal, can kind of dictate where you would probably be uh, better suited to a career, the internal deadlines, uh, academic, external deadlines, uh, an applied career. Makes sense.
1: Yeah, and I'd also I, I'd add to that too that I, I think – uh, attention to detail is really a big one. Um, and again, not to say that academics don't need attention to detail because they absolutely do, but I just think that one of the things you quickly realize when you go into the applied world is how much more is at stake. You know, the, the the work that you're doing is impacting in many cases who gets a job or yeah. how well a company does and if you mess up it's not just a matter of well oops you know now I got to make a correction to this or oops I got to send an email yeah. you make a mistake it's oops all of a sudden my client has lost millions of dollars because they are hiring the wrong people or, or something's going wrong and so you really have to be incredibly focused on I'm uh, you know getting those details correct. Um, you know, paying attention to the contract language, and being respectful of your clients and their wishes, and remembering you know which clients you can talk about and which ones you can't talk about, and mm-hmm. non-disclosure agreements. There's, there's so many things that go into applied work that um, you just don't have in academia, and so you have to be very aware of that and very focused on detail, very focused on the deadlines. Um, it's just it's a different world in a lot of ways, and if you're not the type of person who can cope with that type of environment, it's probably going to stress you out too much or You're just not going
0: to be happy. Yeah, that's a little more pressure than peer review. Just
1: (laughs) Just 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 a little little, bit. Just a little bit.
0: So I asked you to give some advice to students. I'm wondering, do you remember any particularly good pieces of advice you got from your uh, either advisors or just faculty when you were uh, in graduate school?
1: Um one thing and I don't I don't remember the exact way that it was worded, um, but I, I can remember the general gist of it, and this is something that still that still comes up for me um is the need to be brief. Um, I am I'm, I'm very verbose. I talk a lot. Can you tell? It, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? It really helps for a podcast because otherwise it's it like does. thirty seconds
2: long.
1: <laughs> I will take up all the time of the podcast. Um, no, but I, I'm very I'm very verbose. I, I when I'm interested in a subject, I like to talk about it a lot. And I I have to I still have to learn how to curb that and to get directly to the point. And so uh, on several different occasions, I, I got the feedback. time you've got to be shorter about things and that's something i still have to remember and it's i'd say it's good advice no matter what is to to figure out what your point is and get to it and then stop talking so i'm going to stop talking
0: (laughs) now the audio just dropped out there for a second and i just want the audience to know i did not cut katie off that was just (laughs) naturally (laughs) happened i couldn't have planned it better but (laughs) how about you mike any any advice that you remember that you want to pass along well, you
2: know, my uh, my path was always pretty clearly academic, so I didn't have a lot of real specific uh, applied advice that I received in grad school. I, you know, I do remember, and this is maybe kind of outside the topic, but I do remember a story uh, that one of my professors told about uh, doing consulting for a a bank. And he found consistently they were trying to hire the best and the brightest and found that they were turning over at a a very high rate. Mm. And it turns out that people who are the best and the brightest tend to leave these kind of frontline positions and – uh, that's something that's come up time and time again with the work we do and the the findings that we see. And that just that story of him giving me that little bit, that snippet into the real world, had a pretty big impact on how I could explain uh, this phenomenon where you have these achievement-minded, uh, ambitious folks who are you know, scoring high on these intelligence tests. They tend to leave the organization. It's not really so much advice as a little bit of a real-life story that I thought was pretty helpful for me.
0: Yeah, it's like a warning. That's uh, <laughs> I mean, Every employer wants the same thing, which is the best and brightest. But uh, yeah. to your professor's point, they're also the greatest flight risks because everybody wants those people.
1: Yep, yeah. they're in demand. <laughs>
0: So I usually uh, close the podcast by asking my guests to tell me something about themselves that we wouldn't guess from you know, your CV or resume or your LinkedIn profile. Um, so I'm gonna do that and I'm also gonna ask you since you're both in Indianapolis, uh, I want you to start with, if I come to Indianapolis, I've been there before, but if I come to Indianapolis, what is it that I should eat? What is the thing that you should not miss eating in Indianapolis?
1: Oh, I have a feeling we're going to say the same thing.
2: I don't know. You go first. <laughs>
1: okay. All right. I'll go first. So so I would say you come into Indianapolis, you go to Yats. And this Yats? is going to sound real weird. Yats. Y-A-T apostrophe S. Okay. It's, a, it's a small local chain. So there are several of them around here. Okay. Um, th- this is going to sound weird and non-appetizing, but go with me on this. All it right. is it is quick Cajun food. Ooh. Um, it is It's phenomenal. Um, in fact, I, I recently chaired a uh, SIEP consortium with someone who used to live in the Indianapolis area. And one of the first things that he said to me when we talked um, was, oh, my gosh, I miss YATS so much. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's if you come here, go to YATS. It's delicious.
0: I wouldn't have guessed in a million years that I'm coming to Indianapolis for Cajun food.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Midwest mid- yeah, Midwest. Fast, no, it's, it's fast
0: Cajun. Fast food Cajun.
1: It sounds it it sounds weird, but it's it's delicious.
0: Yeah, it doesn't sound weird to me. It sounds pretty spectacular. <laughs> Were you going to say the same thing, Mike?
2: I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <So that's laughs> we are we are the same person.
1: We are essentially the same person.
0: <laughs> that's, that's a point. double recommendation.
1: It is. I'm, it I'm is.
0: imagining you now like I'm going to yachts with you. You're walking in lockstep. You Order the same food. <laughs> take it back. Uh, or eating it while you're walking on the uh, the treadmill. The so, only <laughs> difference is
2: she's a vegetarian. I am a uh, meat eater. It's true. Dun, 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 okay. Exactly. We are
1: not the same person entirely.
2: <laughs>
0: so tell me something about each of you that, uh, that might be surprised the audience. Something outside of the world of IO.
1: Do you want to go first? Well,
2: I, I guess I'm a avid uh, racquetballer. Okay. I play, play racquetball three or four times a week. Uh, I enter tournaments despite the fact that almost every time I enter a tournament, I tear some part of my body and end up having to have it repaired.
0: I think it's too much Cajun food. That's, that's <laughs> my advice. Quick Cajun <laughs> food yeah, in it's Indianapolis. It's wrecking your body. Mike, really.
1: <laughs> that story would be funnier if it weren't true that he was destroying every joint in his body.
0: Yeah. But... It works Let me guess Like massage therapy Or physical therapy Is your hobby then
2: Katie
1: (laughs) It it would save us A lot of money If it were But Yeah Yeah That's uh, It's It's a It's a situation
2: Oh I can do Katie's too Uh, She was in beauty pageants Until she was 22 years old Oh
1: I was not Going to share that one In the
2: first year Of grad school She was competing In Miss Ohio
1: I was not Going to share that one. (laughs) But it is true.
2: I
0: need to interview couples more often. <laughs> <laughs> so was but your was your like talent like predictive validity tests? Or could you like predict who was going <laughs> to win ahead of time with like a, a bubble seat? I,
1: I, yeah, I sang this beautiful aria about the different forms of, of validation that you could do. Um, yeah, it was really, it was
0: quite moving. I would like to hear that. It might be a special episode <laughs> of the 2012 podcast. So what were you going to say before uh, Mike jumped in?
1: Um, I, you know, I was actually kind of struggling to figure out exactly what to say. Um, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that kind of has popped up on my, my social media. Um, and one thing that, that I did kind of think of is that I've been, um, fairly, fairly avidly involved in, uh, animal rescue since, um, back in college. So I was actually part of a, a group in college that worked with the local humane society. Um, and we have a couple rescue dogs ourselves. We've been, uh, Dog foster family, so um, that's really kind of been a passion of mine uh, for for many years. is um, is is animal rescue.
0: All right, very cool. Well, yeah. I want to thank both of you for being uh, on the uh, show tonight. I'm going to put uh, some contact information for you in the show notes. I'll also put a link to your employer if anybody's interested in learning more about First Person. And uh, thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, thank yeah, you for having for us. Having us, Ben.
2: Have a great uh, great night.